But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Well, good morning. Um, As you guys know, I'm sure. We're going through our Freedom Series, and um, after that communion, I feel like you've already preached my sermon, so um, I can basically sit down as well, um, but I will share what I've written, so um, I'll just start. Oh, is the PowerPoint up? It's the first slide. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. C.S. Lewis once wrote that it is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation, every family since the world began. I don't think that I've ever read anything that's been more impactful to me than chapter 8 of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. There's a whole chapter on this idea of pride, and it's tricky because we use pride in lots of different contexts, but um, he uses it in a very specific way. He says that there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. Like I said, it's it's a tricky word because we use it that we're proud of something and it can be positive sometimes, but Lewis uses it in the sense that he calls it the complete anti-God state of mind. It's the state of mind where we look at everything in relation to ourselves. Lewis says that pride is the state of mind where we look at everything in relation to ourselves saying everything is about me. And here's the paradigm that I want to wrestle with today. The paradigm that is... The freedom to stop striving. Self-obsession, working to impress God and to impress people, will make you miserable. It will make you miserable. However, being amazed by the beauty of God again and again and again will set you free. And in this, I want to ask the big question, what is it that makes you feel important? What is it that makes you feel important? Because the human heart longs to be valued, it longs to be loved, to be respected. And unless this question is resolved, unless the question of why are you important is resolved, we will look for it in all kinds of crazy places. Augustine once said that 
You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts will be restless until it finds rest in you. What makes you feel important? And I think it's crazy because pride is such an easy thing to talk about. It's such an easy thing to have an objective kind of view of, an academic kind of idea. But it's really hard to actually see in ourselves, to actually understand how it works. And that's the difficult challenge that hopefully we'll wrestle with today. Because if you're anything like me, pride is the biggest challenge of your life. And maybe you don't know it, maybe you don't see it. Hopefully you will today. John Stott, the, one of the most famous Christians of history, said it like this. Pride is your greatest enemy, but humility is your greatest friend. Oh, sorry, I think I've got a couple of slides behind. Sorry, I, I don't know if this is working, but thanks, Wendy, if that was you down there. And I'll say it like this. Self-obsession will ensnare you. It will trap you. It will ruin your life. But a, a kind of humble self-forgetfulness Finding our identity in Christ, it will set you free. And I hope that sounds good to you because it has been the most joyful, exciting adventure of my life. And um, I have a lot to share with you now, but um, I'm also nervous because it's kind of the foundation for all of Christian life. This is kind of everything to me, and um, I want to say it right. So um, let's just pray together again that um, I'll be speaking through what I have to say, and you'll only listen to the good bits. God, I pray that you be glorified in everything I have to say right now. May every word that I've prepared work together to highlight afresh who you are. To renew our awe of you. Let us see in a new way how good you are. To help us fall more and more in love with you. Amen. As a young man, I grew up in a little bit of a Christian bubble. I'm happy to admit that. Um, my family was Christian. I, I went to church as, when I was very young. I, um, I, I spent a lot of time playing soccer with my school friends. And um, as I left school and joined university, I met a lot of people that were very different to me. Um, I started having a lot more qu- questions and, and difficult questions. And, and a lot of questions that I wasn't sure if I was allowed to have. Kind of questions that I was like, do these even have answers? Does this kind of like destroy Christianity? And eventually, one of the biggest questions I had was, if there are so many other religions out there, how do we know that Christianity is the right one? If there are so many, there's thousands of them, how how do we know that Christianity is right? And while it seems like an enormous task to deal with a thousand other religions right now, what we can do is look at why Christianity is actually unique. Why Christianity is actually different to every other one. And one of the big answers that I had was that most religions show that Oh, sorry. Most religions have a system where their followers can reach God. If you do all these things, you can eventually reach up to God. But Christianity is completely the opposite, and we believe that God actually reached down to us. Before we could do anything, before we could achieve or strive or, or, or perform well, God reached down to us. So just as an example, I'm going to talk about a few of the world's biggest religions now. And um, just as a preface, I am no absolute expert. Um, I did a few hours of Google research and I did a subject at school on this kind of idea. So, um, And I'm only speaking very generally, so hopefully, hopefully I don't misrepresent this. But we'll start with Islam. If you know much about Islam, Islam has five pillars that kind of hold up the Islamic faith. The first one is a declaration of faith. Basically, Muhammad is the true prophet and Allah is the one and only God. That's, that's number one, the first pillar. The number two pillar is five daily prayers. 
Maybe you've seen it in movies. They love to stop throughout the day and have five daily prayers. Number two. Charity. Number three. It's kind of a guess like tithing a bit. If you're wealthy enough, you need to give away a certain percentage of your wealth to the poor. And if you're not wealthy, you need to kind of compensate in that with good deeds or good behavior towards others. Number four is fasting. Ramadan was just recently. They, they fast from sun up to sun down, all to show devotion. And number five is a pilgrimage. If you're able to get to Mecca at some point in your life, you need to go to Mecca. And all of this is to earn respect, to earn your salvation, to earn right standing with God. But as soon as you stop doing it, you're no longer righteous, you're no longer right with God. It's built on this paradigm of, have I done enough? Hinduism. Maybe you've heard of the idea of karma before. We kind of use it in pop culture. Um, It's pretty simple in some sense that as you do good things, you get kind of good karma. And as you do bad things, you kind of get bad karma. And uh, every time you die, you're reincarnated into a new life. And depending on how good karma or bad karma you have, you might come back as something good or bad. It's essentially like a cosmic point system, I guess. And um, if you've been really good, you might come back as like an eagle or maybe like a really rich human. Or if you've been really bad, you might come back as like a, a worm or like a slug or something really not fun. The kind of ideas being established is that if you're good enough, you'll be rewarded. And if you're bad enough, you'll be punished. And then Buddhism is kind of another interesting one. And this one's much more complicated, but... Essentially, the idea is, is detachment from all physical desire. If you can somehow manage to get to the point where you no longer want things, you can become enlightened and detached from the physical reality and join like a spiritual plane. And then Judaism, we know Judaism is all about following the Mosaic law. If you follow these rules well enough, you'll achieve righteousness. I'm sure you're starting to get the idea, all these religions have a theme, that if you're good, if you work hard, if you strive, you'll achieve righteousness. And if you don't, you'll be punished. It works on this tension of, have I done enough? Have I done enough? That's always the question in the back of your mind. And before we look at Christianity and and we ask the question, is Christianity just the same as this or is it different? I want to quickly look at our non-religious culture too. Because our culture says that if you're friendly enough to people, people want to be your friends. If you work hard, you'll earn lots of money and, and you'll be rich. And if you groom yourself and look nice and are presentable, then people will want to look at you. It's all about doing things in order to achieve. And the most impressive people in our culture are the most successful people at doing these things. The athletes, the, the movie stars, the people that make the most money, the people that look the best. In Mere Christianity, Lewis explains that working to validate ourselves, striving to perform, is all about pride. It's all about competition. He explains that pride is essentially competitive. All of our works are just an effort to make ourselves look better than other people. Here's how Lewis puts it. Maybe we're... Oh, no, this is it. Great. Now, what I want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, but only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. 
If someone became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And right at the end, he says that pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Striving, competing, working to validate yourself is competition against others. It's, I'm better than these people so that I'm righteous. And it eats up the very possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. So let me try to ground some of this in reality for you. And I'm just going to use examples from my life that are a bit scary to share, but uh, might make you see how pride is so subtle but dominant in our lives. And I'm just going to talk about these three things at the end. Um, love, contentment, and common sense. So first one. I know that I am extremely guilty of doing good things for terrible reasons. I know that after church, I I would pack away chairs or I would clean up so that people would see me cleaning up. I wasn't trying to love anyone so that they didn't have to do it. I was just trying to look helpful. So that someone might see me and say, oh, Ben, that guy's helpful. I know that I've complimented people so that they might think that I'm a nice person. I don't want them to be happy. I, I want them to like me. I know that I've helped someone move houses so that eventually they might help me move houses. And it's just like when we pray so that we earn God's approval, we're not not loving him, we're not actually enjoying him, we just want him to like us. I'll do the right thing so that you like me. It actually defeats the purpose, It, it ruins it. It kills any possibility of love. And when I was in Nepal, I was there for about 10 weeks, and it was my favorite place to be. I loved it so much. And after 10 weeks, you learn a little bit of the language. You learn how to say hello and goodbye and thank you and things like that. And I asked someone how to say thank you, and they actually explained to me, and, and maybe it was just the region we were in or whatever it was, that because it was such a Hindu-based language, that they didn't really say thank you very much. Because it was all based on karma, if someone opened the door for me, they were doing it for themselves to earn good karma. They weren't doing it for me. And for me, that was like crazy to realize, but then I realized how much I do that. They're just a little bit more aware of it. (laughs) Pride kills love. And contentment. When you're striving to feel important based on other people's smiles or laughs or approval, it's so temporary. It's so fleeting. As soon as someone says anything negative, boom, it's all gone. You start looking for the next hit. What can I do next for someone so that they'll smile at me, so that they'll like me again? The tension is always there. Have I done enough? If we find contentment in people and striving, we're going to be miserable again. And common sense. Um, I started going to the gym when I got married to Alana because she loved going to the gym. I didn't want to go to the gym. It was just... Alana's going to the gym and we should do things together, so I'll start going to the gym. Um, we went to Big W, we bought a bunch of clothes and, and got ready to start going to the gym together. And um, I enjoyed it, it was fine, whatever. After a while I started feeling like really insecure and I felt really like uncomfortable at the gym because I had these like ratty Big W clothes and all these people looked really cool and they were really fit and I was kind of like not that strong and it was kind of embarrassing. Um, and after a while I was like, okay, I need to go to buy some nice, better clothes, right? Because I want to look good. I want to fit in. I, I know you start taking protein powder so that I look a bit buffer. And It hasn't really worked, I won't lie. Um, 
But I realized it was just my pride. It was just my sense of competition with others that was breaking down my common sense. The clothes that I had were fine. They worked. They covered up my body. Of course they were fine. But my insecurity and my pride drove me to do stupid things. And advertising is a billion-dollar industry that preys on your insecurities. It preys on your pride. The things that you are trapped to to make you feel uncomfortable with what you have. And it's all because we're competing with each other. It all works in that tension of, have I done enough? So, how does Christianity work? Is it the same as all these other worldviews? Is it basically just the same kind of thing? So Luke 18 captures two answers to the question that um, we started with. What makes you feel important? Luke 18, verse 10 to 14. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his, up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I actually have so much grief for the Pharisees. They are so close to Jesus. They are so close to Jesus, but they just don't see him. They keep missing out again and again. They're in so much bondage to their pride, to their achievement, to their striving, that they they miss out. And it scares me because today we can do the exact same thing. We can come to church week after week, week after week, being so close to Jesus, but miss out because we're blinded to our pride. If we come to God saying that we're important because of all these things that we've done, we'll miss out. But we also see another way here, and it's completely different to what we've been talking about before. The tax collector comes from a place of knowing his shortcomings, of being willing to say, yeah, I'm not good enough, but he is accepted anyway. He is the one who leaves justified because he is accepted despite any of the things he has done. He's not a slave to the question, am I enough? He knows that he is not enough, but God treats him like he is enough anyway. Where every worldview we've been talking about teaches that you need to earn your approval, you need to strive to reach a point where you are enough, Christianity says no. We know that we're infested with sin. It destroys even the good stuff we do, but God's love is unconditional. Even good things like prayer won't make God like you more. Christians don't need five pillars. We don't need karma. We don't need law to make ourselves right with God. We just need Jesus. It is simply faith alone in Jesus and what he's done for us that makes us right with God. That makes us enough. And before we get into the main passage that we started with, I just want to say one thing quickly. 
I hope that you've heard this kind of message a hundred times before and that this is exciting for you and that this is amen good. I hope that that's the case for you, but for me, for a long time, it wasn't. I grew up hearing this kind of stuff week after week after week and my pride got in the way. It felt boring, it felt old, it felt just kind of like academic ideas. And I think that really grieves God's heart that, that pride gets in the way of him meeting with us. And God wants to change that in our hearts. Maybe it's just a simple prayer that you want to pray in your heart right now, or, or maybe you want to grab someone at the end and, and just talk about it. But for now, we're going to go back to Romans 3.21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made Sorry, the righteousness of God has been made known. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. There it is again. Righteousness, right standing with God. The question, am I enough? You are enough if you have faith. If you have faith in what Jesus has done for us. No work that we've done will make God love you more, will make it more of a, yes, I am enough. It's simply faith. I used to use this analogy when I would do this kind of talk at a youth group, and um, it might sound simple, but it's kind of similar to the cooking one we had today. Um, if I was making a milkshake and I poured all kinds of delicious things in there, like milk and ice cream and your favorite topping and some fruit, and, and then I got a cup of dirt and poured the cup of dirt in there and mixed it all on up, it doesn't matter how good the ice cream or the banana or the milk or any of that stuff is, it has dirt all through it. We know that sin pollutes even the good stuff that we do. And besides that analogy, even the good stuff we do isn't that good. I have a lot of favorite quotes, but this one has absolutely changed my life. If it comes up. Beautiful. The gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Your right standing with God is not about you. It's not about what you can do. It's about what Jesus has done for you already. This statement here, this sentence is a pride killer. Time and time again, I come back to this and, man, it is hard to wrestle with, but it kills pride. Competing is useless. It's pointless. It's a waste of time. It's not about how good you are, it's about how good he is. So let me just finish with one last idea. I think pride is so dominant in our lives because at some sort of level we're all pretty insecure. We all want to know, are we good enough? Like I said. We want to fit in, we want to be seen to be liked by people. We want to to get along with people. And we learn these patterns from people. We learn that if we do the right thing around your friends, they'll like you. Or if you act well, your parents will be nice to you. We learn these patterns. But one of the biggest breakthroughs for me was learning that God isn't like all the people in my life. In some small ways he is, but 
people have, are full of faults, unfortunately. Sometimes people forgive us. They say it's okay. They still expect things from us. Sometimes you get forgiven, but you really want to work hard to prove to someone that you were worth their forgiveness. But God isn't like that. We don't need to impress him. Our passage in Romans talks about receiving the righteousness of Christ. And that's twofold. The first one is that one, yes, your sins are washed clean. They're done. Everything bad that you've done, gone. But the second part of it is that you receive Christ's righteousness. Not only have the wrong things you have done been gone, washed clean, but you receive Christ's righteousness. His standing, what he's done is attributed to you. It's crazy. No longer are you defined by what you can do, but you're defined by what he's already done. So don't get caught up in the trap of trying to prove yourself. I don't know how many times I can say that. You're not going to be able to prove yourself. I think that I'm learning that the more I focus on myself, the more miserable I will be. But I was designed to focus on God, and it's only by focusing on God that I stop looking at myself. It's only when I get caught up in how beautiful he is that I can stop staring at myself, being obsessed with myself. I can only let go of my pride when I actually look at him. So God wants you to draw close to him again today. He wants you to let go of your pride. And maybe that's a simple prayer or whatever it is. But we're going to sing now and I hope this can be a time for you to respond to God. And maybe you want to stand and you want to praise him for everything that he's done. Maybe you want to sit and you just want to have a moment of reflection with him. And maybe if you're daring, you want to grab someone and pray with them. I would love that. Maybe you want to do it after the sermon. Maybe it will be a little bit awkward or maybe it will be full of joy. Because the journey towards freedom is really difficult sometimes. We get stuck all kinds of places, but we're doing it together. We all wrestle with pride. So let me just pray for all of us. God, you are worthy of all praise, of all honor, and of all glory. Thank you so much for your son. Thank you that we no longer need to worry about our worth, but can rest in who you say we are. Teach us to actually live like this. Free us from our pride and show us how to live in freedom. Amen. Thanks, man.